In this episode, we're going to flip the script. I'm going to be the one being interviewed. I was interviewed by Dr. Indu Partha, Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson, on her podcast, The Aho Way, Primary Care Pearls from South Campus. We talked about everyone's favorite subject, dizziness. Now, if you're an otolaryngologist like me, you can stop listening now or fast forward so at least I get credit for the download. But for everyone else who finds dizziness to be mystifying, this will be a good primer to understanding otologic causes of dizziness. We aren't getting granular here. No need to differentiate the saccule from the utricle or know what otoliths are for. You're going to get lost in the weeds. But if you're having trouble differentiating postural dizziness from positional vertigo, this is the episode for you. Without further ado, me. Do you know what can be an annoying process? Having to listen to ads in order to listen to an awesome podcast like this. Do you know what's not an annoying process? Working locum tenens with Weatherby Healthcare. Their experts streamline everything from credentialing to housing with industry-leading technology and know-how so you can simply focus on what you love, practicing medicine. Head to financialresidency.com slash Weatherby to get started and feel free to keep your favorite podcast on while you're at it. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Aho Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program at South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based, patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Bradley Block, to the podcast today to talk the dizzy patient. Dr. Block is a board-certified otolaryngologist who practices general adult and pediatric ENT in Garden City, New York. He graduated with honors from the University of Pennsylvania and then attended medical school at State University New York in Buffalo. He completed his residency in otolaryngology at Georgetown University Hospital. He hosts the wildly popular Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, which is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians that aims to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. So I am looking forward to learning more about dizziness and vertigo, Brad, but before we start, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are away from work? Tell us a little bit more about your podcast and where can we find you? Dr. Partha, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to do this. So a little bit more about my podcast, because when I'm out of work, I'm either with my children or I'm working on my podcast. So all of the hobbies that I used to have have fallen by the wayside. That's what happens, I guess, when you have three boys all under five. So most of my time is dedicated to them, which is a lot of fun. So, but my podcast, um, 
So it's called The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are found. Just look up Physician's Guide to Doctoring or physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. That's my website, which is basically just a jump, jumping off point. And this was, this is a passion project of mine where I, you know, I just, what, what ultimately happened was my wife is really good at interacting with other human beings and I am not. It might seem different on the podcast because I kind of turn things up, but so I thought, you know, how can I get better at this? Because sometimes it's not so great when you're interacting with patients and things aren't so smooth. So there are experts out there that can teach us the soft skills. And if you have a podcast, you know what you can do? You can just call them up and ask them and they will appear on your podcast and talk to you. So I have a lot of people uh, on the show that talk about, you know, the physician-patient interaction and how we can improve with that. I recently had BJ Fogg, which is, who is a um, behavioral scientist, to talk about his book, Tiny Habits, where we can actually, there's actually science that tells us how we can get our patients to start developing better habits. So that was a huge win because he he's just, He's a genius, I think, and, and hugely popular, yet he appeared on my little podcast. So so guys, check it out. There's a ton of stuff that applies to internal medicine because it really applies to all specialties and our lives in and out of medicine. But we're here to talk about dizziness, not about my podcast. So, <laughs> yes. Well, I am ready to jump in. And I have to say one of the selfish reasons for having a podcast is I get to learn while hopefully teaching others. So I love uh, bringing folks on who will teach me a little bit more about things I need to learn about, such as dizziness and vertigo. So why don't we get started with a patient case? Great. Let's do it. All right. So we've got Mr. Phil N. Dizzy, who is a 72-year-old man with a history of AFib who is recovering from a recent knee replacement. He presents to the office with a chief complaint of dizziness that has been present for three weeks. He is still able to play racquetball at the club, but just doesn't feel like he's quite on his game while he's here. He's also uh, telling you he's got trouble with his urinary stream. Looks like lots of going on. Where would you start with this visit, Brad? And to actually quote one of my residents, ENT physicians take care of dizziness. Shouldn't this patient be seeing somebody? And it sounds like this patient should be seeing someone else, right? Because he has a lot of risk factors that sounds like he could be having a stroke, right? A fib, recent knee replacement. I, I'm not sure what's going on with the trouble with his urinary stream, but maybe he's on a medication for BPH that could be dropping his blood pressure, that could be giving him dizziness. None of these things I treat. So as an otolaryngologist, I have the advantage of just really looking for the things that affect my organ system. Now, it also behooves me to, to triage my patients well, such that when I do not identify the cause of dizziness, I'm able to point them in what I think is the right direction. And sometimes this is a neurologist, sometimes this is the cardiologist, sometimes it's the ophthalmologist or even a neuro-ophthalmologist. There aren't many of them around. You know, if you can find one, make them your best friend. <laughs> so, you know, the I think it's important to be able to classify from the patient description and taking into account their risk factors, which of those organ systems you think is going to be responsible for the dizziness? Gotcha. So what might be some of those buzzwords, historical symptoms, history that you would be getting that would let you know, yes, this patient is seeing me and I'm the right person for them to to see? What kind of gets you thinking that there is an otologic origin of this dizziness versus this gentleman has low blood pressure and needs his meds adjusted. So, you know, the thing that they teach you in med school, the, it's all in the history. And frequently with dizziness, it's all in the history. Now, I'd like to give the caveat 
that there are plenty of patients that will see me, will see the cardiologist, will see the neurologist, will see the ophthalmologist, and they end up getting punted back and forth between different, and nobody's able to identify the problem. So this is one of the reasons why dizziness is frustrating for doctors and even more frustrating for the patients that are experiencing the symptoms and the family members that have to take care of them. So, you know, if you feel like you're stuck in that situation, it happens. It's really unfortunate, but it, it is something that happens. But when I'm talking to someone about dizziness, it's all in the history. You really need to get them to drill down to what the dizziness experiences like. And I think in this context, it's important to to understand that leading questions are frequently necessary. Because okay. if you just hammer away at them, what do you mean by dizzy? What do you mean by dizzy? You said dizzy. Don't use the word dizzy. That's something that otolaryngologists common, commonly say is describe what you're feeling without using the word dizzy. Because a lot of times that's what the, because it's just such a nebulous, hard to describe feeling. But ultimately what you're looking for mostly with otologic causes is room spinning. Okay. Right. Is the room spinning around you? Not is the room waving back and forth. Is the room spinning? And a lot of times it's a very distinct sensation. And by definition, that's what vertigo is. So if you're going to throw around the term vertigo, it's important to recognize vertigo is a symptom, not a diagnosis. So if you're telling a patient that they have vertigo, it's kind of like telling them, you know, they come in with abdominal pain and you tell them that they have a stomach ache. Right? <laughs> it's, it's not really. I have been very much guilty of doing that. That's for sure. But I think a lot of times what physicians mean when they say that is they mean benign proxismal positional vertigo, which is kind of a mouthful. And if you give the patient that term, they're not really going to be sure what to do with it. So sometimes, you know, they have a name, it's vertigo, you know, they get to, to leave uh, feeling like their problem has been identified. But the reason it's vertigo, well, actually, I don't know why it's vertigo or why it's the term vertigo, but it's room spinning because that's what the function of the semicircular canals is for. Okay. So you have three semicircular canals that are all, oh, what's the term? They're all at right angles to each other, orthogonal. They're, they're all orthogonal to each other. I think that's the right term. Got so it. They, so if you think about a CAT scan, right, there's the sagittal plane, there's the coronal plane, there's the axial plane. So these three semicircular canals are all in these three planes, although they're all at a little bit of an angle. So not exactly, but for all intents and purposes, that's the angle. So they're, mo they're meant to give you rotational information. So if I'm asking Phil and Dizzy to describe his dizziness to me, I'm sometimes going to lead him with, well, is it lightheadedness? Do you feel like you're off balance? Is the room spinning? Is, do you feel like you're losing consciousness? Are you having trouble concentrating, double vision? Like all of these could be under the umbrella of dizziness, but really room spinning. And also off balance could also be, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. And as a person who's long suffered from motion sickness, maybe I'm incorrectly asking the patient if it feels like a motion sickness feeling where you're feeling a little spinny yourself, if that makes sense. Is that a legitimate term to be asking for in a history of vertigo? Are those two separate things? Are they interrelated? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure that would help me narrow down the diagnosis at all if they're feeling motion sickness. Now, motion sickness, I'm glad you brought it up because motion sickness is, is important to just understanding the vestibular system and where the vestibular system fits within the greater nervous system. So why do people get motion sick? So if you think about it, if you're in a car, if you're in the backseat of the car, what's your view of? You're viewing a stationary car. You're viewing the inside of the, the front seat, your, the floor, the roof, 
you're looking at a stationary car. Yet this car is accelerating and decelerating. And Indu, I'm sorry if this description makes you sick, and it <laughs> might. And for some of the listeners, especially if you're driving, my description might make you feel motion sickness. It probably will. But what's happening is you're accelerating and decelerating. You're accelerating and decelerating, and your ear is being told it's moving. But your eye, or sorry, your ear is telling your brain that you're moving, that you're accelerating and decelerating. Whereas your eyes are telling your brain that you're not moving. So the fact that these two um, signals don't coordinate is what makes you sick. I have a theory for why kids don't get it. And that's because a lot of times, you know, we were evolutionarily, we were being carried around when we were kids. So if you're being carried around, a lot of times you're accelerating and decelerating, yet your eyes are looking at your, you know, maybe the underbelly of your parent or the back of your parent or something like that. So you have to be able to tolerate it when you're a kid. Now, eventually we outgrow it and like spinning rides sound horrible to me. I mean, my wife and I had this experience. We went to an ENT conference at, at Disney something and we went to the Universal Harry Potter ride, which is this giant screen and you sit on your broomstick and you know the screen makes it feel your eyes are telling you that you're moving but your ears are not and so we felt horrible for the rest of the day it's because of that lack of coordination got it you have perfectly explained so many pieces of my history um, <laughs> my intolerance of imax movies the reason i need to look out the window when i'm in a car and would never sit in the middle i'm one of three children and i would refuse to sit in the middle because I had to look out the window or be at the window. I guess I always assumed it was just the fresh air, but your explanation of then being able to actually get the visual cue that I'm moving instead of staring at the back of my parents, you know, front bucket seat in the station wagon makes a lot of sense. But we'll get back to Mr. Fill in Dizzy. Sorry, one one more point. Yes. Because you're on an airplane. Another bad experience for me. <laughs> but but what, what you're moving, and yet most people, or a lot of people don't get motion sickness on an airplane like they might do on, in a car. Right. Even though the inside of the plane is still to you, yet you're moving on the outside. And the difference is velocity versus acceleration. Got it. So, so in, an, in an airplane, you're moving at constant speed. And if the speed changes, it typically doesn't change very much unless you're going up or down, at least relative to the overall speed. Whereas in a car, there's a lot of acceleration and, and deceleration. So it's, that's what the ear measures, acceleration and deceleration, not velocity. Got it. Yeah, that's so much in the anatomy, so much in sort of piecing this um, all out, both with the motion sickness and I think just the dizziness and the dizzy patients that come into into the clinic. And I guess it, it sort of helps to hear some of the descriptors that you were speaking about, kind of the historical features you might get from a patient. How about the fancy maneuvers that we always hear about, your Dix Hall Pike, the Epley maneuvers? Can you run us through that a little bit? What are we looking for? How is it properly done? And what's yes. the difference between them? So BPPV, benign proxismal positional vertigo. If there's anyone who's med peds out there, so you're also, or family medicine, so you're also seeing kids, there's a different diagnosis called benign proxismal vertigo. Benign proxismal vertigo, something that happens in kids, they'll develop these sudden onset room spinning where it's not positional, right? So it just happens out of nowhere and tends to last, you know, less than a minute, same amount of time as benign proxismal positional vertigo. But that's an 
Interesting, it's a, it's a neurologic diagnosis and tends to be a precursor for migraines later on. So just don't confuse benign proxismal vertigo with benign proxismal positional vertigo. So what are the buzzwords that you're looking for when you're talking to the patient? Well, for that, I'm sorry, I, I went in a different direction there. You're, uh, you're, we're asking about the maneuvers. So BPPV, so John Epley, who invented the Epley maneuver, recently passed away. You know, a giant in otolaryngology who's, who, you know, who's responsible for improving the lives of, of countless patients because we use this maneuver so often. So when you have a patient with benign proxismal positional vertigo, the test that you want to do is called the Dix-Hallpike maneuver. Okay. And what you're going to do is you're going to lay them back. Their head's going to be hyperextended at about 20 degrees, right? A lot of times you can't do it because you might not have the ability in your office to lay them back. They might have some arthritis that's going to prevent you from doing it, but you just do the best you can. So their head is hyperextended a little bit and then their head turned 45 degrees. Okay. The question is which side? Right. And the answer is, well, you want to try both of them actually. So classically the patient's going to, again, it's all in the history. They're going to report when they have benign proximal positional vertigo, classically they're going to report that when they lie down, when they roll over in bed, they'll experience these sudden episodes of vertigo. And they'll really describe it as room spinning because it's so sudden, right? Proxismal. And it's really distinct room spinning. They can also often say it if they're looking up or if they are bending over. So these are the different instances where you'll hear them saying it. And, you know, sometimes they'll say it's happening on both sides. Sometimes I have patients that say, yeah, it's been happening on the left side. And then we'll test them. And it's not present on the left side. It's only present on the right side. So what the heck happened? I have no idea. You know, I don't think they're making it up and I don't think they're wrong. I have an explanation, but I'm still able to fix it. So great. So what you're going to do, you're generally look, what you're generally going to see for posterior canal, BPPV, and really you don't have to know the differences in these. If you're trying to take notes to know the difference between lateral canal and posterior canal, and you're hitting a home run already because you're, you know, so much, you're ahead of probably some even otolaryngologists. So what you're going to want to do, you lean them back 20 degrees, hyperextended, 45 degrees to the left, and you're looking for a geotropic rotary nystagmus. So their eyes are going to be dancing around and it's important to tell them before you lie them down that they need to keep their eyes open because they're going to want to shut them tight. Right. And then you might miss it. Like it's already gone. It might be a few seconds. And by the time you convince them to open their eyes, the dizziness is gone. So you need to tell them beforehand and you need to tell them beforehand that it might happen and that they need to ride it out. Okay. So if what is rotary nystagmus, and that's really kind of all you have to remember is, is rotary nystagmus as opposed to horizontal nystagmus. Okay. So what you're seeing is the most common cause of BPV is posterior canal. That's, I think, like 75% of the time. And you wait for it to ext- extinguish. And then you can go directly from the Dix-Hallpike maneuver into the Epley maneuver. Okay. So you have the head at 45 degrees, right? And then once it's extinguished, you turn the head 45 degrees in the opposite direction. So if the patient tells you, yeah, whenever I roll over from my right side to my left side, it happens. So fine, you haul pike them to the left, Okay. wait for the rotary nystagmus to extinguish, and then you turn them um, 90 degrees to the right. It's probably going to happen again because those otoliths are going to drop. And the premise here is that they're otoliths that become canal liths. So you have these otoconia that are in the cochlea 
that fall into the semicircular canals and they're rattling around. And basically you're trying to get them into a place where they don't bother the patient anymore. So, so you're going to turn them 90 degrees, wait for the nystagmus to stop and the dizziness to stop subject subjectively. And then you're going to turn them another 90 degrees. So at that point, they're going to have to actually turn onto their shoulder, which everybody's going to try and sit up to get onto their shoulders. So you have to kind of slide them over to their chair, get them on their shoulder, turn them over. So now they're looking close to the ground and wait for it to go away. And then the next thing, this is something that I do. I don't know any of my colleagues have had this experience where I have them tuck their chin into the chest and then I sit them up, but I make sure that their chin is down when they're sitting up because I've had a few instances where the crystals much, must drop into a different semicircular canal okay. or I mean, maybe into the saccule or the utricle and they feel like the floor is coming out from under them. Oh, but if wow. I have them put their chin into the chest, you know, it's just a different, it's, a, it's basically vertigo in the sagittal plane, okay. right? They feel like the floor is coming out from under them. So they put their chin in their chest and then I have them slowly pick their head up. Okay. So do you do just one Epley maneuver or is it a repetitive type of thing or one time should? I do one. I have partners that will then do it a second and then I have them follow up in a week. Okay. And generally I will do the Hall Pike maneuver first to the side where I don't think it's going to happen. So then we've ruled that out. And okay. then we go to the side that we're probably going to end up treating. So here's another thing about dizziness that you can take away from treating BPBV. A lot of people complain afterwards that they don't feel right for a few days. They'll describe, I feel like I didn't feel like myself. I felt like I was in a fog. I felt like I, felt like I was off balance. I felt like, you know, and so tell them that's going to happen beforehand. And if you have a person with particularly violent nystagmus, like there, it's really, you just really see their eyes dancing around severely for a long time. They're more likely to have more severe imbalance. So why are they having that? Essentially because their inner ear is fatigued. It's fatigued. It just ran a marathon with that maneuver and it's going to be tired for a while. So now when they rotate their head, they're not being given the positional information that they should be. Okay. Right. Their brain isn't being given as much of that signal as it should be. So it's disorienting. And, you know, if, if you have a patient who's describing their dizziness as feeling off balance, it could be vestibular weakness. So that doesn't fit in with any of our major diagnoses, right? Like, Meniere's disease, BPBV, vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, but it's something. But, and it's something that actually happens after, commonly after labyrinthitis or vestibular neuritis. So we'll talk about those in a minute, but that happens after BPBV, which can help you kind of conceptualize, again, how the inner ear works. It's, re, it's responsible for telling you rotational acceleration information. So if it's over-functioning, it's going to tell you the room is spinning. And if it's under-functioning, it's, going to tell, it's not going to tell you that your head is turning when it is. So if you're still, you're fine. But if you're turning your head, then it's disorienting. I mean, imagine looking over your shoulder when you're driving and your brain not being told that your head just turned. So that's, you know, it's, it's a simple way to conceptualize if this is an inner ear problem or not. Okay. Right? Like it's a way to differentiate it from your patient that's completely the dizziness is described as more of like an orthostasis, right? Like, oh, it happens when I'm standing up. And frequently that's confused for BBBV. Why? Because it's positional. Right, right? exactly. The patient's getting lightheaded when they're standing up. They're changing position. But that's not what we mean when we say positional. We generally mean like lying down and turning or bending over. Not bending over and standing back up, but bending over, like when they're actively bent over. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I, I do think that's where a lot of practitioners, my residents get confused that whole, well, it's a change of position, but not uh, being clear enough as to what that position is, you know, what is changing, where's their head, where's their body and position sense, if that makes sense. And, yeah. you know, being internists, I think our natural first thought is, could this be orthostatic hypotension? And we go down that, that pathway. So you had mentioned vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, Meniere's disease. I think all of those names, probably Meniere's is the one we might see or think of first. Can you tell us a little bit about vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis? What are we looking for? How is this different from BPPV and why should we be able to tell the difference? So vestibular neuritis is, and labyrinthitis are pretty similar. Okay. Sometimes it's called vestibular neuronitis. Sometimes it's neuritis and labyrinthitis. Basically labyrinthitis is vestibular neuritis with hearing loss. So if your patient has room spinning and hearing loss, it's labyrinthitis. If they just have room spinning, it's vestibular neuritis. And if it's just hearing loss, then it's sudden centineural hearing loss, which is uh, its own thing and for a lecture for a different talk for a different day. But vestibular neuritis is thought to be a viral inner ear infection, right? And it's, I think it's, I think it might be thought to be due to an enterovirus, Okay. Which is interesting because so is acute flaccid myelitis, which is something that, that happens seasonally in kids, you know, where they'll just lose strength in, in one of their typically peripheral, but I think can be central, peripherally or, or, or centrally. So it's thought to be due to enterovirus. And what happens is they'll, it'll get in, the inner ear gets infected. And so what happens if it's stimulated and over-functioning, you'll get room spinning. Sure. But this room spinning for vestibular neuritis will last anywhere from hours to days. Okay. And so you can typically see the, the nystagmus. And it's typically a horizontal nystagmus. And then when they, what happens is they'll look towards the affected side and the nystagmus will diminish. I'm sorry. They'll look towards the, the side that's not affected. This is more for like, this is esoteric ENT stuff, actually. This is the type of thing that would be on our board exam. But the, if they look to, let's say it's vestibular neuritis of the right ear. Okay. Actually, I apologize. I might be getting this wrong. Um, <laughs> but you look towards the affected ear um, and the ear is actually pulling your eyes in that direction. Okay. So you look towards the affected ear and then nystagmus extinguishes. Why? Because okay. the ear is pulling the eyes in that direction. Got you'll it. look away, you'll look in the other direction, and then you'll see this nystagmus. Okay. And that's when the patient will feel symptomatic. They'll get worse when they're looking away from, from the affected their... side. And this is treated with time. Okay. I mean, sometimes they need to be admitted because it's so horrible that they can't keep anything down right? They, it's like they have to crawl on the floor to get to the bathroom. This is debilitating. Yeah. This is debilitating. And a lot of times you'll just give them benzos to just get them through it because benzos, the benzodiazepines are vestibular suppressants. And you know what? Meclizine just ain't going to cut it because they are in rough shape. Speaking of And then it's just over. That's like a popular choice for those of us in primary care clinics. Do you ever use it? When do you use it? Do you, is there a particular case you would or would not choose Meclizine? Meniere's disease is the only time that I'll use it. 
Okay. So Meniere's disease. So you have an established diagnosis of Meniere's disease. Okay. And uh, sorry, but back to the vestibularitis. We'll go to the mechalazine in a second, but back to the vestibularitis. Like this is someone that should really be, we don't do anything for them. I mean, we're happy to see them when it happens so we can help you with the diagnosis. But you know, this is a patient that's frequently, they come in through the ER since they're so debilitated, they'll get an MRI because this could be a brainstem CVA, Right. right? So, so they'll typically have had an MRI, there's no findings, and then you just have to keep them comfortable until it burns out. And after the vestibular neuritis resolves, they're left with vestibular weakness from anywhere from days to weeks to months. So okay. they feel off balance in a pretty, and it can be in a pretty terrible way. So a lot of times we'll send them for vestibular rehab. So basically they go to uh, physical therapy to challenge their balance system. So if you have someone that feels off balance and you're worried that, that they might have, they could have BPPV and they're just not experiencing the vertigo. Got that it. sometimes happens. You know, you want to haul pike these patients. Absolutely. And then, and it could be, it could have been vestibular neuritis, but typically there's an event that they'll remember since it's so, such a debilitating thing. So they're left with this vestibular, vestibular weakness. And the last thing you want to do for these patients is start meclizine. And the reason is we need their vestibular system to recover. Okay. And you're suppressing it by giving them meclizine. You don't want to give them a vestibular suppressant. You want to challenge their vestibular system. You want them active. You want them moving. You want them doing everything they can to get it to recover. So by prescribing meclizine to someone who feels off balance, you're delaying their recovery. So you definitely don't want to give meclizine in these patients. Okay. Okay. Well, that but, is good to know because I am unfortunately thinking about the many... Uh, times we've told people don't do too much don't challenge yourself take your meclizine and i wonder if we've just been del- delaying their recovery by doing so well it's i mean it's hard to you know you don't know what it's hard to go back it's you don't know what their diagnosis was right like right. like for me to to say this i'm saying it in these like you know it's vestibular neuritis and yeah. their vertiginous episodes are gone and then interestingly a lot of times vestibular neuritis can cause bppv Okay. So they end up later having BPPV that they have to come back and get treated with a maneuver. And the epilim maneuver is actually just for the most common cause, the, the posterior canal. There's also, we sometimes will do a log roll. So what'll happen is you turn them to the left. And sorry, we'll get back to, I keep on jumping around. I apologize for this. <laughs> I just get so excited about dizziness. They're so all, to say. all connected. So I get it. So, so it might be a lateral canal, BPPV. And what happens is you turn them to the left and they have vertigo and they have nystagmus. You turn them to the right, they have vertigo, they have nystagmus, but typically it's a horizontal nystagmus okay. that is stronger on one side than the other. And the way, and you'll do a log roll to these patients, not an Epley maneuver. So a log roll, you basically, you start them on, the si- on their back, have them turn their head to the side. That's less affected, okay. less affected. Stay on that side for about a minute, turn over onto their belly for a minute, keep turning in the same direction. So now they're on the side that was worse before for a minute and then have them on their back for a minute and then sit them back up. And you'll know it's working because when you get them to that worse side, they're feeling better already. Now they can lie on there. So let's say the left side was not quite so bad. The right side was really bad. You have them turn to their left for a minute, turn to their belly for a minute, keep turning. Now they're on their right. And now when they're on the right side, it's not quite so bad. They're able to, to, to tolerate it. So just asking a 
a practical question. What kind of exam table do you have that they could fully yeah. roll all the way over? Is this something Ours, you tell them to do at home? On the no, this is all supervised. Okay. This is all supervised. We sometimes have patients with recurrent BPPV. Right. Where it like happens over and over again. And eventually they just get to be able to Epley themselves. Okay. So there is a role for, you know, I've seen YouTube videos of self Epley maneuvers. So that. Yeah. But I think it really should be supervised one because it's diagnostic and two, it's becomes, you know, diagnostic into therapeutic. If you have a patient where you're like turning them onto their side and it's happening and like you're confused and you don't know what to sit them up, send them to ENT. Okay. Because I've seen it happen where they've, been in in a position like let's say that it was this log roll and you had them turn to the right and the right is the worst side and you keep them there posterior canal bbb tends to extinguish after a few seconds maybe 30 seconds maybe a minute but if you keep them with its lateral canal on this side that's really bad you're really going to fatigue their vestibular system and they could be debilitated for weeks oh wow if you're not sure but you've made the diagnosis yeah. Send them to ENT, you know, we'll do the maneuver. But if you do it incorrectly and it doesn't extinguish quickly, then you could cause some serious vestibular weakness that could be with the patient for a while. So if you're not sure, and they're like, they're really dizzy. They're really uncomfortable. Their eyes are dancing all around. I'm not sure what direction to go in. I'm not sure what to sit them up, wait till they're feeling better okay. and, uh, and send them to us. And sometimes these patients can't drive themselves home. So, right. you know, before you do a therapeutic maneuver, you want to make sure that you give them the caveat that they shouldn't, they may not want to drive themselves home. Some people insist on having the, them chaperoned. Some people will put them in a C collar afterwards, actually, the academy, just so they're not moving their neck so much. Although the uh, academy actually recommends against that, the academy guidelines. So, so, and there have been lawsuits where people got into car accidents after being treated for BPPV. Got and it. So, so, you know, this is the variation in the ENT community and how, how we treat this. But so, okay, where were we? Meclizine. I think we were, we were talking about Meclizine. Meclizine, Meniere's disease. I kind of am picturing the name Meniere with accent mark here, there, and everywhere. Why don't you uh So yeah, so one of the that. questions uh, <laughs> that I had proposed to you that we should talk about was, who was Prosper Meniere and why does he have so many accent marks on his name? And, you know, I think I'm funny and this is otolaryngology humor. And then the next question was, who was John Epley and why does he not have any accent marks on his name? <laughs> right. Very, I'm very funny. I read these to my wife because I was so proud of them. And she, you know, she's not a physician. She did not think that they were so funny. Uh, and then she tried to tell me where the accent marks were on Meniere because she speaks French. Oh, so apparently if you speak French, you know where the accent marks go and what direction they go in. But yeah, so he was a Frenchman who first described what Meniere's disease and classically Meniere's disease is, is four symptoms happening simultaneously. So it's true vertigo. So room spinning. Okay. It's a sense of fullness, a roaring tinnitus and a low frequency hearing loss. Okay. And one of my mentors once told me, if you're looking for all of them happening at the same time, you're never going to diagnose Meniere's. Okay. That's what was my, going to be my next question. Do those all need to happen at once or can they happen in succession, you know, separated by time? So typically, no, they're not separated by time. They're either happening or they're not happening. Okay. Um, so if they're happening, they're happening together, but they are happening. They are happening together. You might not, the patient might not experience all three, 
And sometimes what happens is they'll start off just with a low frequency hearing loss. Okay. Intermittent low frequency hearing loss. And we treat that as sudden central hearing loss, which, which is its own thing. You know, we treat that with high dose steroids to try and get their hearing back. But when it's low frequency hearing loss, it might be endolymphatic high drops, which is what Meniere's disease is. So what's endolymphatic high drops? Well, it's ultimately too much pressure in your inner ear and the inner ear on, you know, cadaveric exam on imaging ends up being uh, dilated. Although they've found lots of people with endolymphatic high drops that never had Meniere's disease. Okay. So typically, and people with Meniere's have endolymphatic high drops, but not everyone that has endolymphatic high drops will end up with Meniere's. Okay. We don't know why. We don't know why. So, and we don't know why we treat it the way we do. <laughs> we treat Meniere's disease sometimes with steroids. Why do we give them steroids? We don't know. What do they do? <laughs> we don't know. So sometimes if it's causing a vertigo or a sudden loss, sometimes you'll put them on systemic steroids. Sometimes you'll put them on middle ear steroids. She'll actually inject steroids through the tympanic membrane and oh. hope that it gets absorbed through the round window and the oval window. If they're having an attack, if they have sudden hearing loss, if they're having you know, vertigo while they're while you're seeing them. So, and then we also put them on a potassium sparing diuretic. We'll put them on like triamterine. And there's thought to be, you know, an electrolyte imbalance in the endolymph that is leading to the high drops. So you're putting them on the diuretic. There's so much unknown about Meniere's disease. It's really hard to say, but those are, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for these episodes and they generally last hours. They generally last hours. These episodes of vertigo, hearing loss. And the most common diagnosis to confuse it with would be a vestibular migraine. Okay. So vestibular migraines can give you, you know, episodes of true vertigo that last for hours, recurring episodes, kind of like many years, and frequently we'll treat them similarly. Like what's your dietary trigger that causes your migraine? What's your dietary trigger that causes your many years? And you can give both of these patients meclizine for when they're having an episode. But really these are the only patients that I'm giving meclizine to. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, you read, you go into up to date thinking, oh, does this patient have veneers? What should I lifestyle wise advise them? Have you found the low caffeine, low salt interventions make a difference? Is that just something to make us feel better that we're offering them some relief? Yeah, that's, uh, I think it was Voltaire that said something like, the physician's job is to entertain the patient while nature takes its course. And so are we just entertaining the patient while nature takes its course? Well, uh, it's, it's really hard to say, but yeah, we do recommend low salt diet for this, you know, similar reason that we're prescribing a potassium sparing diuretic and then caffeine. Yeah, you're really, you're recommending the no fun diet, right? Like no, <laughs> no salt, no alcohol, no caffeine, no fun. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no nicotine. So, you know, and, and it helps to, for them to have a diary to track when it happens, a food diary, because they might have certain food triggers. Okay, fair enough. Similar to migraines. Actually, some people also treat meniers like migraines. I was actually at a, a lecture a, a couple of years ago where they talked about giving patients uh, Dolovent, which is a supplement for people with migraines that I think it's B-complex CoQ10 and magnesium, okay, which are preventative for migraines, and they this you know person had was having success with with that. Although clearly that's anecdotal, I, I don't know what the data is behind that. 
Got it. I mean, I can tell you personally, I am a migraine sufferer. I usually just get more of, you know, your classical migraine, but six, seven years ago, I was traveling, visiting my uh, family in New Jersey, had a migraine, did not have my medications with me. And it turned into the worst case of vertigo you could ever believe. Like I was you know, lying in bed, not wanting to move at all. And I that had is vertigo. It was that like, is vertigo. That's it was vertigo. Yes. Horrible. And oh. I was supposed to fly back home the next day. And I just thought there is absolutely no way with my history of already getting motion sickness that I was getting on a plane with vertigo with three kids. So I just waited it out. I mean, speaking to your time will it was a horrible couple of days eventually went away but i'm sorry this podcast is turning out to be <laughs> but this is what podcasts are all, this is why i have a podcast so i can get my questions answered <laughs> i'm curious about certain things and i it you know a lot of times it turns into like a personal coaching session for i was me. like i feel like you're my therapist regarding yeah. my motion sickness and the the vertigo attack i and had your migraines yeah and we had you know we had this primary care twitter chat a little while ago, right. where we were talking about the difference between sinus headaches and and migraine, sinus headaches and sinus infections, and this was another opportunity for you to go, hey, wait a second, that's <laughs> yeah, just some stuff for me too. This is all very relating to my to my personal life. So this might be a loaded question, but with BPV. BPPV, vestibular neuritis, labyrinthitis, Meniere's disease. At what point? you know, as a primary care provider supposed to say, you know what, I've sort of hit my end. I really should be sending my patient on to a specialist and having them get referred to you. Or do you think if we're comfortable and knowledgeable, we would be able to manage these patients on our own? Well, this is an opportunity for me to plug my practice. ENT and Allergy Associates, we are the largest ENT practice in the country. We're in the New York metropolitan area. And generally, if you're having trouble with a patient, we can get them in either the same day or the next day. So, you know, have a low threshold if we're in the area, but I recognize that a lot of people listening to this are not in parts of the country that have such a high saturation of otolaryngologists. So you're going to want to try and manage it on, on your own. Well, I, I mean, I think, I, I don't know how to answer that because it really is what your comfort level is. I think, you know, it behooves you to diagnose the things, to, to not miss the things that are scary and dangerous. Sure. And ultimately those are not the otologic causes, you know, short of someone getting in a car accident because they're, because they're dizzy, you know, the, none of these things are going to shorten the patient's life. Okay. Having, you know, it's ultimately quality of life as you experience with your vertiginous migraine, it's a pretty miserable quality of life. But if you end up delaying diagnosis because you've been trying a couple things first for the ENT stuff, it's, it's not ultimately going to be harmful to the patient, okay. right? You miss a brainstem stroke, you know, that's a problem. So I think it's just ultimately within your comfort level. I think personally, I think everyone who's dizzy, maybe most people who are dizzy should at least get a hall pike, should okay. at least get a Dick's hall pike. And yeah, what kind of chairs do I have in my office? They're kind of like dental chairs. Okay. Like they yeah. lean all the way back. I can remove the headrest. So if I, so what I'll do is I'll lean the chair back with them sitting up, take the headrest off and then, you know, lean the back and turn them to the side. So, you know, I'm able to do that in my chair. I don't, I have, cause most of our stuff in oligology is sitting up. 
right? <laughs> we need to be able to lie them back for some procedures and for this, but generally it's, a, it's an exam chair. Right. An exam chair. Not that an is exam table. Yeah. Our yeah, tables sometimes are shoved in the corner so we don't have a ton of room, you know, on yeah. the back side of the bed. Yeah. How about the hearing loss portion? I guess that's where personally I always worry. If Is there some way that I'm going to harm the patient by delaying them getting to an otolaryngologist regarding their hearing loss if they have Meniere's disease? Is there something you would be doing, or I'm obviously any steroid injections into the middle ear, I will not be doing that. But <laughs> I think that's the bit that I always worry about, that is there some delay in getting to ENT that I'm going to irreparably damage their hearing and lose that window of time? So with sudden hearing loss, which is where patients suddenly lose their hearing. The thought is the sooner that you treat it, the better. And we tend to treat it with high dose steroids or middle ear steroids, whether it's Meniere's related or not. Okay. Um, if they have sudden hearing loss, they get treated with high dose steroids. If it's Meniere's related, it's probably, it's like I said, it's a low frequency hearing loss. This is where your tuning fork might come in handy. Okay. Because that's going to test the lower frequency. That's like 125. And 20, I don't know offhand what most tuning forks are, but, but I think, but they're definitely low frequency. So it's going to be pretty accurate. When you have a high frequency hearing loss, then the, the tuning fork isn't that useful because it is, again, it's a low, most tuning forks are, are low frequencies or even the higher frequency ones tend to be mid frequency. They're not like 4,000 Hertz, which is, you know, a higher frequency for understanding human speech. Sorry, I got off track there a little bit. We're, we're, <laughs> so we're, just uh, oh, in so, terms of Meniere's oh, low losing, frequency. Yes. Yes. So missing out on hearing loss. So one, you can test it yourself, right? With your tuning fork, you can see if they have some hearing loss, but yes, time is, is of the essence with getting them their hearing back. Okay. If someone has Meniere's disease in general, it tends to be a progressive disease. And then it also has a tendency to burn itself out. So, you know, they'll get, they'll have an attack. They'll lose some hearing. They'll get some of it back, most of it back or all of it back but you get enough episodes and it's going to slowly wear away, whittle away at your hearing. But you know, once you have many years, you have, should have a relationship with an otolaryngologist. And I think that time to diagnosis of many disease on average is like two to four years. Got it. Like frequently people will have these, you know, these nebulous sensations, these intermittent spells, you know, I've, I have patients that come in and their, their low frequency hearing loss has been attributed to eustachian tube dysfunction to allergies. These people get allergy tested on allergy medicines, it'll finally, ultimately, they end up, you know, we can sometimes catch them while they're having an episode, and then we can see the hearing loss. But until then, you know, oh, I get this intermittent earfulness. Well, that can be all sorts of stuff. But then, you know, when it combines with the vertigo, it gives us a better picture. In terms of the workup for this, you know, we can, sometimes people do VNGs, which is, you know, basically caloric testing to give them, we give them nystagmus and then we measure their nystagmus and it, we can tell us if the inner ear is weak or not. Also, we, you know, you're going to track their eye movements in different positions. That's what the video nystagmography is. You can get an ECOG, electrocochleography, which can tell you with poor results whether or not the patient has Meniere's disease. It's not like if it's negative, they don't have Meniere's disease. And if it's positive, they do. The positive predictive value for that is terrible. Yet sometimes we get it because we're trying to build a case because we can't figure it out because it's hard. Is it Meniere's? Is it not? Is it vestibular migraine? Is it something else? It's just, this is hard. This is challenging. Dizziness is tough. Yeah. So, but yeah, the sooner, once someone has a hearing loss, the sooner they get to us, the better. But recognizing also that not everyone has great access to an otolaryngologist. 
No, definitely. And I, you were talking about workup and the VNG, et cetera. How about a role for um, MRI? When, in which situations might you send patients for MRI who are presenting with dizziness that you do think is otologic in nature? Is there a role for that? And what kind of symptoms might put you off in that direction? So there is no role for an MRI in benign proxismal positional vertigo. Sure. Right? No role. Right. Period. You hall pike them. You get the you get the nystagmus. You epley them. You see them a week later. They're feeling better. Their epley's now or their hall pike is now negative. There is no role for an MRI. This is why I say every patient with dizziness should at least get a hall pike because again, also not everyone will describe their or experience it as true vertigo. Okay. So, you know, you would think I can diagnose someone with BPPV because they're going to tell me that when they roll over, they were experienced room spinning for like 20 seconds and it happens over and over and it's always on the same side. And, you know, one of those, what they tell us in med school, not everyone reads the book. Right. right? So not everyone is going to present this way. I've seen tons of patients, particularly older patients, that they just were kind of off balance and they had BPPV and they weren't experiencing the vertigo and you haul pike them and the, their balance can get better. Also something with older patients that are just off balance, uh, there's rarely not going to be a role for vestibular rehab in someone who's, you know, they're just, they're older, they're dizzy, they're at risk for falls. Like if you can't figure out a diagnosis, just send them to vestibular rehab because it's going it. to help. So, but, but with Meniere's disease, yeah, I mean, th there's some debate among otolaryngologists about if someone has a diagnosis of Meniere's disease, if they need an MRI or not. Some people are going to say, you know, you're going to miss some people with a um, vestibular schwannoma. I was uh, going to say that seems like the one we're always looking for. And I'm not sure that we really know why we're trying to look for it. It seems like one of those internal medicine questions that we rarely yeah. ever find. But you know, the more you look for them, the more you're going to find them. I sure. found them on patients that had asymmetric hearing loss. That's typically our indication for doing it. Gotcha. And they had their worst hearing was on the side without the tumor. So Fair enough. you found it. It was on the other side. Like this is someone that never, you know, would have been scanned yet. They, you know, or for, for another reason, they're getting a scan. So yeah, vestibular schwannoma, you're typically going to present not necessarily with vertigo, you're going to present with asymmetric hearing loss. But again, you know, that's what you're getting with Meniere's disease. You're getting asymmetric hearing loss. Right. So should they get an MRI? Some people say yes. If they have like, you know, classic Meniere's, do you need to get an MRI? It's, it's up for debate. It's up to debate. It depends. It depends on the malpractice laws in your uh, state. No, just kidding. It's a, right. We shouldn't be thinking about that. We should be treating the patient in front of us. But right, there's a cost to MRIs. Right. Right? Like it's not just a financial cost, but you find these incident dilemmas and you end up sending them down this rabbit hole of other findings, right? We've all had those experiences. Sure. And you end up harming them by getting the MRI. Unfortunately, that didn't help you in working up their dizziness. So, you know, it's not so straightforward what the right thing to do is in that situation. No, I agree. I mean, I think that was the reason behind having this conversation with you is I think really the chief complaint of I am dizzy is one of the complaints that we hear a lot in clinic or we are eliciting it through a thorough review of systems. And then we're almost asking the question, hoping they're going to say no. And when they say <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> we find ourselves wondering, you know, now what are we supposed to do? What did I do? Yeah, like if you're reviewing, going over the review of systems and you're like, okay, so a little weight gain, a little uh, 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 dizziness. Oh, yeah. dizziness. Oh. And- <laughs> yeah. But we, we hear it all the time. So this has been really helpful, I think, in helping us feel a little bit more prepared from the non-cardiac, you know, uh, non-stroke type of origins of, of dizziness. So we've reviewed quite a lot, which has been great information. So wondering if there are maybe some major takeaways that you would like those of us in primary care to kind of keep in mind we're faced with our patient who is telling us they have been dealing with dizziness. What are some of those, you really should know this points that you want to emphasize? So one is how the inner ear works. You know, the inner ear is responsible for giving the brain and the eyes information about rotational acceleration. And so if it's over-functioning, then you're going to feel the room spinning. And that is vertigo. Vertigo is not a diagnosis. It's a subjective sensation of room spinning. So if they're feeling room spinning, there's a good chance, doesn't mean that it, that it is, but there's a good chance that it could be from the inner ear. And if it's uh, vertigo that lasts for a few seconds, it might be BPPV. If it lasts for a few hours, it might be Meniere's disease or maybe vestibular neuritis. And if it lasts for hours to days, then it may be vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis if they're also complaining of hearing loss. So, you know, there aren't that many otologic diagnoses of dizziness, right? We've got a couple. One that we didn't mention was mal de barquement, which is just, I think I'm butchering the French. (laughs) We should have called your wife on board. And there's no bon de barquement. So I think it means like mal is bad, right? De barquement is getting off the boat or disembarking, right? So basically you feel like you're still moving after you've stopped moving. And, And it, you know, we all get sea legs after we get off a cruise, but this can last a long time. And unfortunately, there's no answer for that. The answer is to stop going on cruises, which <laughs> in the advent of coronavirus, I think we should all stop going on cruises. But okay. So, so yeah, so you've got these, the major diagnoses are BPPV, Meniere's disease, and vestibular neuritis slash labyrinthitis. And you're really looking for a room spinning sensation, or if they're experiencing inner ear weakness, then when they're turning their head and therefore challenging the vestibular system, it is a disorienting sensation. So they'll tell you like, when I'm sitting still, I'm fine. But when I turn my head or when I'm walking or when I'm moving, then I'm, then I'm feeling off balance. Although typically there's some insult to the inner ear. So either it's because Meniere's disease that their inner ear isn't working so well, or because vestibular neuritis or because labyrinthitis or because BPPV, that they're feeling this inner ear weakness. So typically it doesn't happen de novo. It's because of some vertiginous episode or episodes that have made it weak. Got it. And then the role for meclizine is for an acute episode of vertigo, either from a vestibular migraine or from Meniere's disease or from vestibular neuritis, but definitely not for BPPV because by the time they take their pill, their episode of BPV that lasted a few seconds has long since resolved. And so, you know, if they're experiencing vestibular weakness and you're giving them a vestibular suppressant, it's counterproductive. You want their vestibular system to recover and you want to challenge it. 
that is uh, a really great, very to the point take home messages that I think really will come into good play for all of us seeing patients in the clinic, in the office space, and working with our colleagues in do you prefer otolaryngology or ENT? Is there a preferred uh, way to be referred to? No, I, I think it's, I mean, technically the name of our specialty is otolaryngology head and neck surgery, which is just a huge mouthful. And the head and neck surgery is where we overlap with our general surgery colleagues, right? Like neck right. dissections and laryngectomies and thyroidectomies, parathyroidectomies, parotids. So it's not just ear, nose, and throat. It's otolaryngology head and neck surgery. So you definitely shouldn't refer to us as that, as that's okay. too much. But I think ENT is better because then the patients know who they're seeing. You tell them they're going to see an otolaryngologist. For whatever reason, they know what an ophthalmologist is. They know what an orthopedist is, but they don't know what an otolaryngologist is. It's not just part of the vernacular. So I think ENT is preferable so they know who they're going to see. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's a little overwhelming uh, a name and a tongue twister. So, But I definitely didn't want to shortchange all your no. training <laughs> and skills by referring to you as our local ENT specialty Appreciate colleague. It. <laughs> but it has been amazing talking with you. I've learned a lot. I, th- I feel like I've seen my therapist uh, talking <laughs> to you about my migraine and vertigo problems and really appreciate you bringing your expertise to the podcast today. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining Dr. Block and uh, me today. Definitely go and check out his podcast, The Physician's Guide to Doctoring which like the Aho way you can find, I'm sure on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple podcasts. And over here at the Aho way, greatly appreciate it. If you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. So other those others can uh, find us as well. We'd love it. If you would share our podcast with a friend and colleague, we look forward to you joining us next time here on the Aho way where primary care is primary. Thank you so very much. Perfect timing to head to financialresidency.com slash Weatherby for a streamlined locum tenens experience. Whether you're new to locums or a pro, Weatherby is here to get you where you want to go. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.